Well, again, good morning, Harvest. If I don't know you, thanks to you. My name is Kenan Vaughn, and I've got the privilege of being one of the pastors and elders here at Harvest Church, and we'll be teaching this morning as we continue in our series in the Gospel of John. If uh, you want to turn there with me, we are going to be in John uh, chapter 18, 28 through about 1917 this morning. I'm going to read a snippet of that with you, and then the rest of it kind of gives the context before and the application after. So we hope that it works that way and is edifying in that way this morning. So if you're able, as you turn to Luke, I'm sorry, did I say Luke this whole time? Well, anyway, they're all full of the truth of Jesus' life and ministry, but this morning we'll be in John. Okay, John, John chapter 19. Would you mind standing to your feet for the reading of God's word if you're able? Okay, so John, as we've charted through the, the Passion Week of Christ and the culminating night of that week, now we're in the wee hours of the morning where he is being handed over to be crucified. So that's where we are in the narrative and the ministry of Jesus. And so this morning, John chapter 19, verses 1 through 5, hear the very words of God. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. It's the word of God for the people of God. And the people of God said, Praise be to God. You may be seated. So Lord, this morning, that's what we're going to do. We're going to behold the man, the God-man, and the one true king, Jesus. And as we behold him in the pages of Scripture, I just pray that you'd illumine us to the truth of who Christ is, our need for him, the redeeming grace found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'd soften any callous hearts in here, that you'd heal broken hearts, that you'd bring uh, grace down like rain on the hearts of those who are hurting, broken, and lost, who are in darkness, that you'd redeem them, rescue them, and transfer them from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son, even through the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, I must decrease and you must increase. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Okay, so for the sake of context, we'll back up and we'll be in chapter 18, verse 28. That's where we left off last time. And uh, this is in, this, in, the, in the midst of some tri- a flurry of trials, six trials rushed into like a seven-hour period. It's crazy. This is not being done according to Jewish law or custom. There are so many irregularities. Jewish historians say that it was clearly done in an underhanded, secretive, deceptive way because the Jewish authorities had lots on their minds. They were worried about if they were to take matters into their own hands and deal with Jesus, the, uh, the Jewish people would rise against them because Jesus had such a following. So they're trying to get the Romans to do their dirty work. Well, how do we get them handed over to Rome and the Romans to deal with them by way of crucifixion, which is how they execute? We got to get him on charges of sedition. How are we going to do that uh, in, in light of the, the, the large following he has in the midst of our Passover feast? It's going to have to be at night. We're going to have to move fast. This is going to have to be stealth mode. Well, the law prevented a lot of this. If they had abided by it, they were supposed to have a 24-hour period between two trials, which were required for any man uh, up for capital punishment. Uh, they were supposed to have a corroboration of witnesses that they couldn't get. Um, they just, they had to do this, you know, apart from the law. They, they rushed it, six trials in seven hours. So it started at about 
10.30 p.m. the night before, and you remember they took him to Annas. This was last week, the godfather of Israel I described him as. Don't know how to better say that. He was the previous high priest. He's still the most powerful man among the Jewish ruling class. His son was the uh, high priest after him, and now his son-in-law, Caiaphas. So he's kind of the granddaddy of them. And, uh, and the Jews go to him first. Hey, what do we do with Jesus? We've got our hands on him. Uh, we've, uh, he's been betrayed by one of his own. How do we deal with him? And, and he tried to question him. He questioned him about his message, about the followers, the movement. He was trying to find, he was fishing for anything that could be seen as um, a threat to Rome so that they could have their way. They could hand him over to Rome properly to be crucified, but he didn't get anything, couldn't get anything from him. So he, he gives him over to Caiaphas, the high priest at the time, his son-in-law. This is probably 11, between 11 and midnight. And, um, and the same thing, Caiaphas loses his patience, loses his temper. They can't get Jesus to, uh, he's asking about what he's taught. Jesus saying, what I've taught, it's always been taught in the open. It's not this secretive, dark, cunning stuff that you're doing. That got him a, a strike in the face by an officer, but it was true. Um, it, it, they couldn't find him guilty of sedition against Rome. The only thing they could find him of, do you say that you're the son of man and the son of God? And he says, I am. He'll acknowledge who he is, and that enrages them. He's not the Messiah they're looking for. He's a Messiah who's called them out in their self-righteousness. They want someone to deliver them from the oppression of the Rome. That's ultimately what he will do, but it begins spiritually. And with their deliverance, their main problem is not Rome. That's what they can't see. Their main problem is their sin. And they think they're dealing with that and their adherence to the law. Nothing about this trial and what they're doing is in any way adherence to the law. Lying and bribery and murder and slander is in no way righteous, but they're blind. And so Jesus angers them. They want to deal with him in the night and get rid of him. And so uh, they, uh, they go to sleep for a few hours. Jesus is held in prison through the night just for about four, four and a half hours. About 4.30, they reconvene because they have to have a second trial on a separate day. They can't get the uh, testimony of the witnesses to agree, but who cares at this point? The whole thing is a kangaroo court. They're trying desperately to corroborate any witnesses. All they can get him on again is that, are you the son of God? And he quotes Daniel. He says, the next thing you'll see is the son of God coming on the clouds in glory and bringing judgment to the nations. And they're saying, that's messianic. That's enough. This man has said, uh, he's our Messiah. He's the son of God. And what further evidence do we need that, that uh, he is guilty? And so they take uh, Jesus, and now it's around wee hours, 4.35 a.m., and they go from the three religious trials, all three accusing him of sedition, all three he's innocent, twice accusing him of being the son of man, on that account, he's guilty. <laughs> so they take him at about 5 a.m. to Pilate, and now we're going to have three civil trials very quickly in the hour. Herod's in town, we're going to see why in a moment, um, and we're going to go Pilate, Herod, Pilate. We're going to deal with the Roman court now. And, uh, and we're still going to have problems ultimately pinning Jesus down for any kind of guilt uh, except the guilt of the human race, which he will willingly take upon his shoulders and pay the price. So I want to make sure you see this. The, the history of it is fascinating. And this is where we are in chapter 28. Oh, one, one, a little bit more about Pilate real quick. He's governor. He's a Roman governor stationed in Jerusalem. He doesn't want to be there. Probably, you might have seen this in movies that depict Pilate. Pilate. He hates the Jews. <laughs> For various reasons, he's from Spain. He wants to be in Rome. All these guys are jockeying for power and position with Caesar. This is a bad assignment. He's kind of with like the dirty, you know, rabble of Jews. They don't like them, these people that are spiritually obnoxious and not very subservient to the Roman Empire. They just would rather not deal with them. He's stuck with them. 
And when he first comes in his kind of defiance of who the Jews are, he brings the Roman standards into the temple, hangs them on the altar. The Jews gather in protest, in mass protest, and say, remove them, or we're gonna, you're going to have an uprising on your hands. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have a civil war here. And Pilate tries to talk him down. He says, anybody that doesn't move, I will kill. They don't budge. This is pretty serious stuff for them. You're not going to take the temple mount from them and put Roman standards on it. This is like Antiochus and the Greek empire slaughtering the pig entrails trails on the altar that led to the Maccabean revolt. They're not going to stand for that. And so they actually back Pilate down. He doesn't want to deal with the uprising uh, on his hands and, and the bloodshed that would ensue and his own uh, uh, potential loss of, of some kind of power. And so, so he backs down. He quietly removes the standards. Caesar's upset. Caesar says, what a display of weakness. And so he falls out of favor with Caesar. So you got Pilate who has fallen out of favor with Caesar who resents the Jews for it. He already didn't like them. Now he resents them. He hates the Jews. And uh, he has a kind of an arch rival who is Herod. And the reason they're rivals, they've both been assigned uh, to the Jew. Herod in the north in Galilee and Pilate in the south in Jerusalem. And, so they, and look, they're kind of jockeying for power. Well, Herod's got the upper hand right now. And so Pilate will try to use this against him, and through it, they're actually going to become friends, interestingly enough. So that's the context. Verse 28, they lead Jesus, or they led him from the house of Caiaphas to the praetorium, the governor's headquarters. It's early morning, again, maybe 4.30, maybe 4.45. They themselves, I find this part funny, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled and could eat the Passover. Isn't that something? You talk about straining the gnat. We're not going to enter the governor's grounds, the grounds of a Gentile, and defile ourselves. We will lie. We will bribe. We will commit murder. We will slander in every way. But we're not going to step foot on the Gentile ground because we would defile ourselves and not be able to take the, the Passover. This is Matthew 23. This is what Jesus said. You guys are completely missing it. You're, you're, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're trying to live this life that tries to prove to everyone else and yourself that you're somehow righteous and you completely miss your spiritual bankruptcy before God, that you are guilty and sinful and wretched. Exhibit A. Okay, Here, that's a great compendium on how they live right there. And so Pilate goes outside uh, to meet him, and he says, what accusation do you bring against this man? He's probably disgruntled. Why am I out here at 10 till 5? Uh, what accusation do you bring? They answer, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you which basically means we got nothing. Pilate answers, well, take him yourself and judge him by your own law. He sees right through that. You got some squabble. This, this is not worthy of my time. This is, there's no offense against Roman law. I don't care about your traditions and your uh, little religious squabble that you've got. You deal with that. By the way, they could, they could stone Jesus, but that, they didn't want to do that. The, again, they, they're trying, they're ultimately self-serving and self-seeking. And they knew if they did that, they'd, they'd have to deal with their own people who would probably likely overthrow them or they'd at least have an uprising on their hand. Because Jesus was so beloved by so many who were gathered at the Passover feast. That's why he's such a great threat to them, that they followed, the people followed Jesus and not them. That's why they want to get rid of him. But they need Rome to do the dirty work. They need Rome to kill him so that they can together with their people shake their fist at Rome. This is the original idea. They'll kind of give up on this as we go through the next hour. But that's what, uh, and by the way, where's the providence behind this? 32, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus has already called a shot. He is Babe Ruth this moment. He has told them, 
in Matthew 20, uh, he's told them multiple times, I will have to be turned over, lifted up like the serpent on the stake in the desert, referring to uh, the plague in, in chapters uh, uh, 20 and following of Numbers, 21 and following, that, he, that you're going to have to look upon him, raised up on a stake with the look of faith. That's a foreshadowing of his crucifixion. He said it straight up in Matthew 20, I will be turned over, flogged, and crucified, period. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows exactly how this is going to play out. And they are ultimately pawns in the Lord's eternal plan of redemption. And so uh, they're, they're not wanting to deal with him through their own political pressure, but this is also to fulfill what must happen. So Pilate enters his headquarters with Jesus. He calls him to him. He's going to say, all right, let me find out, is Jesus really a threat to Rome? He's going to interview him. Are you the king of the Jews, he asks. And the idea being, King David would have been a threat to the, to the Romans. He was a threat to the empire in his day. Like, if you're really a king, uh, is there now cause for concern that we could lay down the gavel on sedition because you're a threat with your kingdom to Rome? So let's, add, let's see, are you? Jesus says, now, he says this, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about, about me? I think Jesus is always looking for the, um, the serious, the sincere seeker. The one that truly wants to know who he is, he will reveal himself to you. You hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. Pilate, do you really want to know? Or are you just doing your job? Are you just finding a reason to get rid of me? Are you just finding a reason to do the will of this people who's offering me up? Am I just a, uh, a burden in your day? Or do you really hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you really want to know if I am indeed the king? Well, Pilate's answer is a little short. Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He, he, his patience is wearing thin. You don't talk to a governor like this. I don't need you to help me. I'm trying to help you. I'm the only hope you got. So he's callous. He's still darkened. He's a pagan. Jesus answers to the question of what have you done? He goes back to his formal question about the kingdom. He says, look, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Pilate says, ah, so you are a king. That's what he gets out of that. <laughs> There's no sincere searching there. What do you mean? Help me understand. What does your kingdom look like? No. So you are king? Did I hear it? Is that what you said? And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. So that's to say, you said it. It's true. I'm not denying that. For this purpose, I was born. Jesus uh, points to his humanity. He's man. I was born for this. And yet for this purpose, I have come into the world. He speaks of a preexistent divine nature that entered humanity on his own uh, volition that he is the incarnation of God in flesh, that he's human and yet he's divine, that he's man and yet he's God. He's the God-man. And look here, to bear witness to the truth. Um, he's a holy king. He's a righteous king. He is a, and by the way, he is the only true king. He's not about power and authority or the power and authority of a nation. He's about the peace of mankind, a peace that begins with the broken rebellion between man and God, man's rebellion against God. He's the true king who can restore a people, who can reconcile them back to right relationship with God. And who, who are his subjects? Everyone who is of the truth listens to his voice. What's the truth? 
The truth is that we are broken and sinful and wretched to the core. The truth is that we can hear Isaiah's words that even our good deeds are like filthy rags, and there's no protest. There's no, wait a minute, I may not be perfect, but look at the rest of these guys, I'm doing pretty good. That's one who speaks to a relative truth, which is no truth at all. The truth is I'm guilty. The truth is if I want to point even to my quote unquote goodness to justify myself among those around me or to whoever, even to myself, I'm pointing, if I'm honest, deep to the crevices of my heart where there are false motives, where there is a whole lot of selfishness, where there is immorality of various kinds, where there is deceitfulness, where there is covetousness. By the way, I'm just talking about me. You can wear the shoe if it fits, but I'm talking about me. Where there is idolatry, where there is taking good things and commandeering my love above the love for Christ. There's always a struggle because there's, there's this inherent wickedness. I feel the weight of it. There's darkness. That's the truth about me. And the truth is there's Jesus. There's one who has given no offense to the law, who's not born of the seed of Adam, but the seed of God. He's born of a virgin. That he doesn't have a sin nature, that he hasn't um, been disobedient to God in any way, that in him is truth. In him is what, every, every way I'm meant to live where I fail in my rebellion and my selfishness and my sinfulness is displayed in Christ. That's what the standard keeping is meant to look like. That's what righteous, that's the righteousness of God that men might behold it. And I see wretchedness and I see righteousness. And then I see the love of God demonstrated in Christ, that he came for me, not for him. He didn't come to establish a kingdom and lord it over sinners like me. He came to redeem me, to invite me and to be a co-heir of the eternal coming kingdom, to have fellowship with God and delight in him as man was meant to do. See, this is the truth. This is the truth of the story of redemption that you and I are living in right now. The pagan can't see the truth. Jesus says, my followers are those who hear my voice and follow me. They know the truth when they hear it. Certain of you guys are nodding, amen, that's my story, that's the truth. Other of you are saying, what? You know what Pilate said? What? Pilate said, ah, what is truth? Yeah, your truth, my truth, the Romans' truth, the Jews' truth, the Gentile, everybody's got truth. But see, he appeals to the idea that there is no truth at all. What's true for you might not be true for me, might not be true for her, might not be true for him. That's the way a pagan thinks. You know what, we, you know what Jesus says? <laughs> I am the truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And, and you're seeing truth incarnated, and then we've got it here, the Word of God. And we judge everybody's idea of what truth is has to be judged by the standard of truth, which is the very Word of God. By the way, you know what, who Jesus is? Jesus is the Word of God. And these are the words of God given to us that we might not have to guess at what truth is, that we might have to land where Pilate landed and say, ah, we'll never know what truth is. No, we know the very mind, heart, will, and word of God, truth. And Pilate says, well, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and he says, I don't find any guilt in this man. This man's not guilty of sedition. He may be, a, I may not understand what he's talking about or who exactly he is, but there's nothing here. I don't find him guilty 
of anything. And by the way, this is where I'd put your finger there and turn to uh, Luke. I keep trying to mix up my gospels here. In Luke chapter 23, and you can turn or you can listen. At this point, he announced to the crowd, Luke 23, verse 4 and following, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent. See, John doesn't record this kind of interaction, this piece of the story. This is what's so beautiful about all four gospel accounts. You get to really fill in the gaps and see the whole story. They don't contradict each other. They complement. They tell the whole story together. He said, I find no guilt. They were urgent. They said, he stirs up people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, excuse me, what did you guys say? Yeah, he's caused trouble from Galilee. Did you say he's been causing trouble in Galilee? Aha, this guy doesn't have to be my problem. I know a guy, right? Remember old Herod? He goes, let's let Herod deal with this guy. Let's put this guy on Herod. It's almost just like a, like a rib shot, you know? Let's just bother Herod with this. And guess what? Herod happens to be in town. This is the Passover. Everyone's here. He's in town. Uh, he's the prefect of Galilee where you say his trouble began. So why don't you go take him? I know where he is. Here's the address. Take him on over there. He'll help you out with this fellow. And um, uh, I'm glad I could help. Uh, God bless. Have a good day. Don't forget to vote. This is... Pilate signing off, going back to bed. All right? Well, if we follow along in Luke, here's what happens. Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sees Jesus. He's glad. He's long desired to meet this guy. He's heard about him. He's heard about the signs he has done. So he, he gets there, and he's hoping to see a sign done by him. He wants Jesus to entertain him. Let me see what you got. I've heard you're like a great magician. You're a sorcerer. of God. Let me see what you can do. He questions him at length. Jesus is not there to entertain Roman prefects. He's here as the mediator between God and man. He came to redeem lost man. He is silent. He's not there to play games. He doesn't open his mouth. He makes no answer. They mock him. They vehemently accuse him. He says nothing. So they put him in a king's clothing as a way of mocking him, and they send him back to Pilate, finding no fault with him. And Pilate goes before the people and says, look, by the way, that was the brief trial for, for Herod. That was five, now six, back to Pilate. Pilate's frustrating. He says to the people in Luke, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find him guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. He sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done. I'll punish and release. Well, this is not what they wanted to hear. He's been five times tried, five times found innocent. They can't seem to catch him. Pilate wants nothing to do with him anymore. By the way, at some point in this, it says his wife has had dreams tormenting her about this man. He's righteous. She sends word to Pilate in the midst of the sixth judgment that says, don't do anything to this guy. I'm having dreams here. He's a righteous man. He's innocent. Don't condemn him. So Pilate, he's frustrated. He's trying to just get rid of him. He says, look, you've got a custom, verse 39, back in uh, John 18, 39. You've got a custom that I should release one man for your Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas is an actual insurrectionist. He's actually a man who led, he claimed to be either a military leader or a, even a Messiah. There were many in that day. It didn't take much to rally the Jews against Rome. They hated the Roman oppression of them. They hated them. Filthy Romans, we are looking for a quote-unquote Messiah, little m, Messiah, somebody who will, just like Judah Maccabee, 
Where's a Maccabee who will lead us out of the oppression of the Romans, who will push them out militarily and mightily? So when a guy would show up and say, hey, I'm that guy called by God, you didn't have to, if you had a presence of any kind, if you could produce any kind of signs or, or credence or had a little bit of a following, you could gather a rabble together pretty quick and say, let's take them. There were a lot of hotheads, a lot of soldiers that didn't like Rome enough. They wanted blood. Well, Barabbas is one of these guys. He actually is a threat to Rome. And so he's been imprisoned. Well, the Jews are saying here, hey, Jesus, he's a threat to Rome. You need to deal with him. Because I don't find any fault with him. He's not a threat to Rome. He says, all right, here's what I'll do. Uh, you guys are worried about Rome? Is that what the thing is? Okay. Would you like me to release it? Your custom will do this as a Passover in honor of you being released by Pharaoh from Egypt by the will of your God. Here's what we'll do. I'll release to you Jesus, or I'll release to you Barabbas, the guy who's a threat to Rome, because that's what you're worried about, right? And they say, give us Barabbas. They show their hand. We don't care about Rome. Uh, give us the one who betrayed Rome, but not the one who betrayed us. You with me? They don't care at all. By the way, it says in Matthew's gospel, Pilate at this point knows they are merely giving him over out of envy. They betrayed their own argument. He knows now this, is no, this has nothing to do with sedition. This is their own envy and angst and anger and hatred of Jesus. And so Pilate takes him and he flogs him. He figures, ah, I'm just going to beat him. He's, he's going to try about four times to not kill Jesus. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. By the way, the significance here, the crown of thorns, just don't miss it. In chapter 3, the result of the curse is thorns. Because of the sin of Adam passively by, you will work the land and it will produce thorns. This is not Edenic anymore. Jesus bears the weight of the curse of sin on his head. It's pressed down in. The blood will flow down his face. He bears the curse. They put it on his head. They array him in a purple robe. They come up to him. They say, hail, king of the Jews. They strike him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I'm bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and purple. He's humiliated him. He has flogged him. Uh, He's done enough in his mind. And he says to them, this, this is a famous quote here in verse 5, behold the man. Now, there's a dual meaning here. There's the meaning of the pagan. Behold the man. You don't need to, this guy's not a problem. Really? You're worried about this guy? Bloodied, beaten, mocked, won't even say anything for himself. You're worried about this guy? Behold, he's merely a man. And yet there's the undergirding theological weighty and eternal truth that this is not any mere bloodied and beaten man. This is, we're meant to hear the Lord even here, behold the man. There was Adam. Adam wasn't the man. Adam fell in sin. There was Noah. Is Noah going to be our redeemer? He's not the man. Moses? Moses will lead us out in the promised land. Is he the Messiah? No. Moses will steal the glory of God for himself. Numbers 20. Stub his toe a little bit, which is understandable in the context of that stubborn and hard-hearted people. But he's not the man. David. He's the man. No. David will commit adultery and turn over his best friend or one of his friends to be murdered. Um, and his, even though he has a heart after the Lord, he's far from righteous. He ain't the man. How about Samson? He looks the part. How about Saul? He's a great military leader. What about Solomon? He's wise. 
Looking for the man, not the man, not the man, not the man. The Lord Jesus bloodied, mocked, falsely accused, bearing the curse of man on his head. Behold the man. There he is. This is the one. Isn't it ironic that that comes from the lips of Pilate? When the chief priest and the officer saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. They're so afraid right now, they're smelling that Pilate might release this guy. He's about to release Jesus. We're going to lose all authority. The joke's going to be on us. They're getting desperate. They scream out. They chant. Pilate said to them, take him for yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. How many times has he said that now? Is that three, four? The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. Now contrast, behold the man with the son of God. Pilate, isn't this something? Pilate, behold the man. He's just a mere man. Them, he's the son of God. (laughs) He's not, they're now talking about, he's not just merely a man, Pilate. He claims to be the son of God. Now, Pilate hears this statement. He's afraid. What's he afraid of? Pilate is a polytheist. He believes in gods. He believes in Zeus. There's stories of Zeus returning at Mount Olympus to punish those who don't respect him, uh, to bring judgment on them. Pilate's afraid because for a moment, Pilate goes, now, wait a minute. What if this guy is some kind of a god? And if that's true, and I turn him over for judgment, uh, my wife's already warned me, don't do this. He's going, man, his, he's got a little quiver in his heart. He's, he's not worried about his soul. He's worried about his kingdom. He, he's worried about his job. He's worried about his position and authority. He's worried about his governorship. And so he brings Jesus for another talk. He enters his headquarters and says to him again, hey, where are you from? He's just digging. Jesus gives him no answer. This is herring. This is infuriating for Pilate. By the way, why does Jesus do that? Isaiah 53. Um, Listen, I read this last week, speaking of the Messiah to come. He was a Messiah prophesied. He will be oppressed and afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before its shears, he is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Three times it says it. Herod accuses him. He won't speak. Pilate, where are you from? He's done. He will not open his mouth. Pilate, you will not speak to me? Do you not know I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? Jesus is going to correct him right here. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. There's a greater authority that's above you, that's sovereign over you, that has given you a platform that you can steward wisely or poorly, but you don't have any authority other than that what's given to you. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Speaking of Judas and the Jews. From then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. I mean, he's pacing. He's trying to figure out, how do I get his blood off of my hands? He'll ultimately say, I wash my hands of this man and of this trial and of the consequence of it. And he said, uh, the Jews crowd, if you release him, by the way, they're going trump card. He is literally seeking to release. So I don't know what that looks like. He's telling them, I find him not guilty. I'm releasing him. And they play the trump card. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So here's the message. This is the defining moment of Pilate's career. Should he release him? The Jews said, we're going to Caesar with this. 
we got a man who claims to be king and you won't put that down, you're no friend of Caesar. And now Pilate knows he's gonna get told on. He's already out of Caesar's favor. Caesar thinks he's weak. Should he not deal with this, according to the public pressure of the Jewish authorities, he will likely in his mind, at least the fear is, completely lose his power and his position altogether. So he has to save Jesus, who is a man he has no real connection, certainly no love for, or he has to save his own neck, save his own career. It's a great test of whether or not you love Jesus. Is he worth more to you than your career? Well, watch this. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out. He sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in, Arama uh, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. So they ate the Passover the previous evening. This is the day of preparation now for the Sabbath. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? <clears throat> the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Yikes. That is a massive fail on the part of the Jew. We have no king but Caesar? Really? So he delivered them, he delivered him, Jesus, up over to them to be crucified. Uh, at this point, when they confess that they are at all costs loyal to Caesar, he's their king, darkness descends on Israel once and for all. Uh, they're done in this moment. They have betrayed the Messiah promised to them ultimately, consistently, and now finally with a loyalty to Caesar. This is why when Moses is read to this day, there's a veil over their eyes. They cannot see or here, Paul would write to the Corinthians. This is why a partial hardening has come on Israel. They're darkened in their understanding until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. And Christ comes again on Mount Zion. That's what Paul writes to the Romans. They betrayed their privilege in this moment. And they turned over Christ to be crucified. Well, look at this. I'll finish here. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now we're gonna dig into that story next week, but let me just say this. Um, if you know your Bible, this isn't the first time that one has been taken to this very hill, betrayed by his own people, specifically the tribe of Judah, bound, betrayed, bound, and made to walk this hill to the place of his appointed death. That man will take a jawbone and he will defeat death with death so that God would take that what was meant for evil, this is what it says in Judges, and use it for good to release his people from their captors. You know who the man is? Samson. This is the hill, I said it last week, 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years previous to this moment, that Abraham trudges up with Isaac, his only son, his only begotten son. And he's prepared to kill him in accordance with what God has committed until God intervenes with the ram in the thicket. This is the hill 
that David would walk up, look over Jerusalem in lament at the place of the skull and say, take my life, I have sinned, don't judge them, don't judge me. And God says, I'm not judging you, make a sacrifice. This is the hill where Solomon will place the temple of God, build the temple. So on the temple mount, the people, a sinful, wretched people might be spared again and again and again and again by the placating of God's wrath through the sacrificial system. This is the hill, the name of this hill is Moriah. In Hebrew, it's more, which means terror. This is the hill of terror. And Jesus Christ is the final judge. He's the final son. He's the final king. He's the final sacrifice. All of those symbols and all of those shadows point to this man in this moment. Behold the man. There will be no ram in the thicket. There will be no sacrifice to take his place. He will willingly lay his life down at the place of terror. Do you know why he shut his mouth? Because if you and I stand before God, apart from his blood, if we stand before God and we are not in Christ, it says every man is condemned, every mouth is shut. You and I would stand before God, feeling the full weight of our unaccounted for sin. If we never acknowledge it till then, we'll acknowledge in that day guilty. Our mouths will be shut and it will be a day of terror. Jesus opened not his mouth. He did not defend himself because he is standing, hear it, understand it, in our place. He's wearing the curse. He goes to the place of terror so that you and I never do. And he will be forsaken and he will be offered up and he will be crucified. And don't ever forget that he died in my place and in your place for my sin and for your sin. And to be in Christ is to remove the terror of the guilt and condemnation from sin. And it's to be alive now and forever in the very right fellowship that God created us to experience with him and be satisfied in him and delight in him and worship him eternally. Behold the man. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that you didn't blink in this moment. Thank you that Jesus, you carried your cross to the place of terror so that we don't ever have to feel what it would be to be alone and isolated and wearing the curse of our sin in that moment. That you've taken our sin upon yourself and you've taken our place in judgment. Lord, if there's anyone here today who has never seen you as who you are, God and man and king, a holy king, and the truth. If anyone here is quickened this day to step away from Pilate's testimony, what is truth? And to stand with you, Lord Jesus, and to say, yes, I receive you as king. I'll acknowledge what most in that day would not and what most in this day will not. I'll bow my knee now to the one who one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that yes, Jesus Christ is king. Lord, if any repentant sinner should come to you today, save them by grace through faith 
in the blood of Christ. For at the place of terror, he took our place. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Pray. Amen.